0: Welcome to the American Negotiation Institute's podcast, where we will teach you the skills you need to get more out of life. And now, your host, Kwame Christian.
1: Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiation for Entrepreneurs. I'm Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer by trade, but my passion lies in teaching you how you can use negotiation and persuasion to get more of what you want. And how to make the difficult conversations in your life easier. Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to give a couple of listener shoutouts. I'd like to give a shout-out to Ben from Myanmar and Tiffany from New York. Thank you both for reaching out. You know I love hearing from all of you, so if you haven't yet, please connect with me on LinkedIn. There's a clickable link in the episode description that takes you straight to my LinkedIn page. So, just connect and I'll shoot you a message. I really want to hear what kinds of topics interest you, and LinkedIn is the easiest way for me to connect with you. And for those of you who are looking for the free negotiation guides from previous episodes, like the negotiation prep guide, the introvert negotiation guide, or the salary negotiation guide, or the car negotiation guide, those links are all in the description as well. Today, we're talking to my friend Adrian Schraver. We talk about the importance of setting expectations early in business relationships, how to effectively use collaborative negotiation techniques, and how and when to strategically bring in an outside party in your negotiations. I'm really glad that we're able to talk about that last part, because thus far, she's the only guest that we've had on the show to bring up that strategy, and it is a powerful one. I know you're going to get a lot out of this episode. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Thanks for joining us today, Adrian.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Kwame.
1: Our pleasure. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
0: Uh, Well, currently, I am a project manager for Hill International. It's a commercial construction management firm that's around the world. Um, I'm in a staff augmentation role at John Glenn International Airport. And what that means is basically I become staff at wherever I'm contracted and represent the owner as a project manager on their construction project. Currently, I'm working on a $7 million upgrade to the existing ticketing lobby and baggage claim vestibules and drive lanes.
1: Wow, that is, that's pretty big. So how long do you think you're going to be on that project?
0: Currently, our schedule has us pushed into June of 2017. And then... I'm out here. My contract has been extended for three more years.
1: Okay. So day-to-day, what does that really look like? So take us into like a day in the life of Adrian.
0: So as a representative of the airport, I do not hold any contracts. I hire general contractors and construction management firms to run the project. So, what I do is guide the project all the way from design to completion. So, with that being said, is, you know, these projects start in the infancy of, I have an idea, this is what we would like to do. We hire design firms, then we hire construction management firms to implement that project. We have various types of contracts here. We have CM at risk. We have straight general contracting, lump sum, so various different types of contracts for these projects.
1: Very interesting.
0: What I do, though, is basically represent all of the stakeholders at the airport and all of their interests. So, you know, we have asset management. We have the facilities department. We have planning and engineering, and each group has their own risk item, and I kind of incorporate all of their concerns within the project and guide it you know, through the process.
1: Hmm. So how does negotiation play a role in what you do?
0: Negotiation plays a pretty big role in what I do because besides just some of the low-hanging fruit and easy ways to negotiate we're just straight contract terms, there's a lot of little things in day-to-day that people don't necessarily think about. For example, when we're starting the project, we just negotiate simple scopes of work, ensuring cleanliness and, you know, just very simple things that are not necessarily in the contract that we can add in as we're negotiating.
1: So what does that look like when we're talking scopes of work? Kind of give the audience a 10,000 foot view of what we're talking about here.
0: So when we start a project... Usually we get a general contractor on board and they have subcontractors that they have to get to complete the project. Uh, what we do is they go out to bid and create a scope of work and that's down to the last nail and, you know, it, it's it's very detailed, like all the fasteners in the project, all the lights, uh, safety requirements, and it's basically a line item list of everything that they're expecting their subcontractor to do in the project. So we go into scope of work buyout sessions with these subcontractors, and we ask them what they included in their bid. They explain everything that they have included. And then we set, you know, this is what our expectation is. So that is really the opportunity where you can get some value add in buying out your subcontractors specifically like cleanliness or there's so many things that you can get in buyout. And usually that's really your opportunity to value enhance your project and ensure that everyone's on board with the same
1: expectations. And that's pretty important too when when we're talking about expectations because uh, when it comes to any relationship, things start to break down when there is a violation of expectations. So at this point, it's pretty important to be as detailed as possible when it comes to outlining what exactly is going to be done and the expectations in both parties?
0: Completely. Um, For example, working at the airport, the security requirements are very stringent. So each subcontractor that works here, there's a badging policy and procedure. So in the negotiations, we have to make sure that all contractors have the fees to complete the badging procedure and can follow our requirements. So with that being said, there's some people that cannot work here just because of the background checks and and things like that. So, you know, outlawing those expectations in the beginning is very important and dictates who can work here. Sometimes some subcontractors going into the negotiation, it's not as successful because they're not capable of following some of the standards. Also, when talking to contractors, we talk to them about construction at the airport or anywhere specifically at the hospital or any facility. That's not what makes them money. They need to function as a money-making building or for whatever service that they provide. Healthcare here specifically for pedestrians coming through because they're here to fly. So construction really should be on the back burner when people come here that you know that shouldn't be affecting their travels so that's most of the things that I bring up as an owner representative in indicating we have to phase the construction or ensure that we're behind temporary walls or, or just make sure that everyone understands what the big priority is
1: right and this is interesting too one of the things you mentioned was implementation and I think that's something that can derail a lot of negotiations after the fact is that sometimes you get so focused on getting a deal done and getting a deal done within your your budgetary constraints that you accept a low bid and without investigation. And so if you don't ask how they plan on implementing it, you might have that unpleasant surprise at the end when you find out that they actually cannot implement it. And That kind of goes to what you said about the background checks. They might not even be able to get on the premises.
0: Correct? You know, just like you said, the how. I mean, some people may look at, you know, a set of drawings and just provide a number to the scope of work that's on the drawings. Well, sometimes people don't consider implementing and how putting that work in place actually affects people. So, for example, our curb front project right now. We are running it in three separate phases so that we can ensure that pedestrians are not affected by the work that is being put in place. So we're only taking down two sets of doors at a time, ensuring that, you know, we still have traffic through the facility. So with those added phases, there's added cost. Mm -hmm. So at the first look at things, sometimes people don't understand there's some of these hidden cost in some of your expectations on what you're asking for. That's why the scope of review, sit down negotiations are very critical on setting the standards of a project for both parties. It really just protects risk.
1: So one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is the fact that when it comes to really hashing out how things are going to get done, even though it might seem like the responsibility is on the other side, the impetus is on you to make sure that they have their offers really well thought out because you just can't give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they've worked everything out on their own end.
0: That is correct. Interesting. So, That's why construction has led itself to construction manager at risk. A lot of contracts are that way. What that means is we try to get contractors on board earlier in the design phase so they are actually with the owner and we're kind of hand in hand in the process through design so they understand the owner's expectations throughout how that's different from lump sum is lump sum, I send out the drawings, I get bids back and I take the lowest bid. Construction manager at risk, you don't go into contract until it's more of a phased approach and you finally go into contract, including all of these phases and all of these details. So there's much more thought And I think that it really ensures that the risk is less from both the owner and the contractor.
1: This is pretty technical stuff. So I know there's a lot that goes into this. So how do you find yourself typically preparing for these types of negotiations?
0: Typically, there's a lot of work ahead of time that you do have to prepare for. I think one important thing is I usually approach my negotiation in a very collaborative mindset what we need to consider is for both me as the owner and the contractor we both want to be profitable so it's good to go into the negotiation collaborative and trying to think of creative ideas on how you both can be successful so with that being said i typically come and understand the needs of how a project needs to be implemented within the facility and then I ask them to be prepared to come into the negotiation on how they thought. Then we're able to come into the situation and kind of trade offers and kind of understand how best to tackle a project. So, you know, there's some things that just not acceptable, like we cannot close down these doors. How can we still implement the project without closing down these doors? So, you know, I come with the things that we cannot do and then we kind of go from there.
1: That's brilliant. I think that's a great way to do it because studies have shown that approaching a negotiation in a collaborative way, if both people are playing the game well, you can actually create value for both parties. And that question that you gave as an example at the end is really phenomenal because it's open-ended and then you put the ball in their court. You're you're not listing demands, you're giving them the opportunity to be creative in this process and, and work to create a, a joint solution. I think that's a really great approach.
0: So I think what's great about that is you give the opportunity for who you're hiring to have buy-in because allowing them to have a voice or even express their concern on the implementation of what you're doing allows them to buy in and know that they're part of the process. And I feel that's when you really have a team approach and it leads to a more successful project in in any shape and form, just that collaborative approach.
1: Right. And What's really great about that is when somebody feels a sense of ownership, when they have that buy-in to the agreement, the agreement becomes more self-enforcing. They're willing to kind of police themselves and stick to the deal uh, more so than if you were to just dictate provisions and they feel forced to accept it. So that it serves the purpose of creating really great deals and it makes it more likely for both parties to adhere to those deals as well. Yeah. Perfect. And have you ever had a situation where – you come in with a collaborative mindset but it's really clear that the other side isn't trying to play that game
0: yes definitely there are some times where it's just down to dollars and cents and you know a project or you know a situation um, you can't get out of because you know it's just down to to money and people are just looking to get a job done and not looking for long-term relationships for the most part um, I experience, situations where people are wanting long-term relationships and having lifetime clients. But there are instances where a project has either went south or there's really critical conversations on a project could take a bad direction. So, you know, we have to uh, address this situation specifically in a non-collaborative mindset. With that being said, sometimes for me, If I'm going to be the main contact throughout a project, it's helpful to have maybe a second party come in, almost like the good guy, bad guy approach, because I'm holding really the same type of stance throughout the project. And it's very positive and very impactful. And it's challenging to change that in the middle of a project and still be able to have that long-term
1: relationship. Interesting. So go a little bit deeper on that. So when you say you bring in somebody else, um, what does that look like? Are you talking like a mediator or what?
0: Yes, it can be a mediator or it's just another representative from our company. Right now, someone from the airport that is more senior would just be in the meeting and be there as just a presence. Sometimes that alone, if you have a relationship, someone for a long time, it's very positive. They can maybe feel like they're going to get something out of you because You almost create a friendship, but having another party come in, they can understand the severity of some of these conversations and understand how important they are and maybe understand it's not just maybe a friendship deal. Does that make sense?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, it does. It it really does. And I think you really brought up a, a really great point. And the timing of this is actually perfect. I was reading this great book called Give and Take by Adam Grant. Oh, I read that book. Yeah, it's great. It's really cool. One of the studies that he mentioned in the book was um, they had people who were couples negotiate with each other and people who were strangers negotiate with each other. And this was in an experimental setting, so they could really monitor the results. And they wanted to see who got the better deals. And what was interesting is that the people who were strangers got a better deal and there was actually more collaborative value creation with the strangers and what they found is that the closer you are to the person that you're negotiating with the closer you are as friends the worse the outcome is going to be because you will concede faster in order to preserve the relationship and you won't really push back on certain issues because you don't want to jeopardize that relationship and so hearing your story about how sometimes you bring in somebody more senior or a mediator it's almost like they can view it a lot more uh, with a more objective lens because they're not as close to the other party.
0: Completely, that's definitely the idea that I I go for when doing that because again, you're you know you're trying to maintain this relationship throughout, and it really does give a great third party mindset on it and kind of ensure that everyone is you know analyzing all the situation in detail like they should and not necessarily maybe taking advantage just because of a
1: relationship. Right. And you know what's cool? You are actually the first person who talked about the possibility of bringing in a third party neutral or or just another person that's part of your team as somebody to negotiate on your behalf. And it's such a powerful negotiation slash persuasion strategy. And I don't think people take advantage of it as often as they can, either because they don't realize that it's an option, or maybe they feel a little bit threatened by the thought that, oh, I need to bring somebody else in. I can't close this by myself. But there's no shame in that. You need to do what puts you and your company in the best strategic position possible. And I admire that you were willing to recognize that and make that decision. Thank you. So in your experience, and this is the construction world, and you can correct my assumptions if I'm off here, but it seems like that's a pretty male-dominated world. Is that correct?
0: Yes, it is. Yeah, I think there's about 8% um, of women that are within the management.
1: Interesting. So how does that affect your approach to negotiation?
0: Um, I feel like it can be a positive and a negative. A decent amount of books about confidence. Um, Recently, I, I picked up The Confidence Code. And if you know what you're talking about and hold yourself in a confident way, then you are respected the way you should, should be in a negotiation or, or any instance in a meeting. So I, I think overall, that's probably the most important thing is just, you know, holding yourself in, in the way that you want to, or people, I guess,
1: see you in a good way. <laughs> Interesting. So what does that look like for you? And I know this is probably going to be different for everybody, but I think it would be helpful for the audience to see in your experience how that has maybe led to some changes in the way you carry yourself or or maybe not maybe you realized that you were performing in a confident manner already
0: i feel you know just ensuring that i do my due diligence to prepare really because i feel like if i do all the work beforehand and kind of make sure i do you know a self analysis on how a negotiation or a conversation will go then i'm much more confident entering into it Most of the time, the lack of preparation causes you know some of that anxiety or not sure on on how things are going to end. You know, I focus a lot on how my day is going to go, and meeting preparation is very important. And I want to make sure that I go into meetings with my deliverables. So then, whenever I do speak in meetings or whenever I do hold meetings, that you know I'm well prepared and, and confident on how I on how I lead things.
1: Yeah, I think that's the best way to do it. And um, one of my favorite sayings is competence breeds confidence. And so for me, I I always take a lot of time to prepare, probably to the point of over preparation, but it helps me to feel a lot better in my negotiation. So I, I have a very more of a rigid approach to preparation just to make sure that I'm remembering things. And so for the listeners out there, remember to Get the free negotiation guide at AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash prep. You can get a free negotiation prep guide. And really, my approach to these types of conversations was inspired by a book called The Checklist Manifesto. Have you heard of that one? I have not. Oh, it's a really cool book. So it was written, I forget what his profession was, but I think it was a surgeon. And what they found is that when surgeons and um, people in the operating room go through certain procedures, just a large checklist of things that they should do, which includes wash your hands, <laughs> the amount of infections in a hospitals went down precipitously. And so it's really harping on the fact that even though you're really good at what you do, you're going to forget some minor details. So taking the time to prepare systematically always leads to increased performance. And in this case, it would be not only just increase performance, but increase confidence during the performance as well. So that is my book recommendation. <laughs> Checklist manifesto. It's not. It doesn't have anything to do with negotiation or preparation uh, or persuasion. But um, I think that just as professionals, uh, we could all benefit from being more systematic in our approach to not just these conversations, but life in general.
0: And not just that, as I feel like everyone, as they go through life. They kind of incorporate their lessons learned. So people's lessons learned kind of become part of their mental checklist and their process going into things. Like if it's happened before, it potentially may happen again. So it's worth crossing that off that you've addressed it, you know, going into something. So for construction, that definitely holds true. I mean, I think even personally, that can even hold true. So, you know, everyone incorporates their experiences in kind of in their process.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's really smart to do too. It's funny. <laughs> like the prep guy that I post on uh, the website is probably like, three, four, five pages, something like that. But the one that I go through, every time I go through a negotiation and, I, and something different happens, I add a little thing to it. So mine is probably like eight, 10 pages that I go, go through every time. Because I'm just afraid. I'm like, I'm not going to make that mistake again. <laughs> but it, I mean, that's how we get better. Exactly. So in your experience, have there been times when you've experienced conflict, like these difficult conversations?
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, there's many instances where, you know, a project can start to go down a wrong path where you have to have critical conversations and, you know, address things either through financial concerns or just scheduling. And as, you know, a leader of a project, you are listening to all the people that you're hiring and their concerns. So some conversations can be extremely challenging. And I think the ways that it it's most successful for me is knowing that we've set up expectations in the beginning and relying on those. Not having those expectations set in the beginning can really lead things astray. And then, you know, if you pop something in the middle, you really don't have too much to stand on during your critical conversations.
1: That's such a huge point because you have to set that essentially what you're saying is setting the foundation for the relationship early, as you should. <laughs> like when you're talking about the the scope of work or having the initial conversation or negotiation, you're setting those expectations. So when there's a violation, you can go back and hopefully you have it in writing. And it, it makes these conversations easier to have because you know you have a firm foundation upon which to build your arguments or your points.
0: Definitely. That's honestly how I found most of my success is ensuring that, you know, the foundation is strong. Um, Unfortunately, you know, if a project doesn't have a great start, I will have to say that throughout the project, it is a very large struggle to try to build that in the middle. You know, it still can be done, but... Sometimes it takes someone to budge financially or with schedule or just with something, and you really don't get that much value add if you start that in the beginning.
1: Right. And would this be one of those times that you would consider bringing in somebody else?
0: Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I don't think in all instances it's required. I think, you know, sometimes it's I'm capable and confident in holding a conversation, you know, just specifically with a party. But whenever, it you know, there's a large financial matter or something else, sometimes it really does take a mediator to build. And then it, it provides you another way to re- look at that relationship because i feel like once you introduce now you're introducing another party then you can almost bring up the whole topic in itself is let's talk about our relationship and it, it's just a great it, it kind of a segue on how you can do that
1: i love it that's a great point and i know we're coming up on time so i want to skip down to our, our last question here For our audience members who want to become better leaders and better persuaders, what is one tip that you would give them in order to improve these skills?
0: I think we all need to consider that we all have a skill or service that could be the benefit of others. So knowing that when you enter into a negotiation, that there are many other things that you can add when being collaborative, such as, you know, if you can try to get a free car wash added into a service or I don't know. There's just so many different ways that your talent is worthwhile to others. So sometimes it can be a good bargaining chip when you enter into something and, you know, get a value add.
1: I love it. Good deal. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Adrian. We really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thank you much, Kwame. I look forward to hearing about
1: it. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you find this information helpful, please leave a review and subscribe. My goal is to teach these skills to as many people as possible, and leaving a review helps our search results, which helps us to reach more people. Remember, success and failure is determined by how we handle these critical conversations in our lives. My job is to make these difficult conversations easier while getting more of what you want in the process. I've had the opportunity to provide these negotiation and mediation services to a wide variety of professionals, including lawyers, entrepreneurs, and warring business partners. I do this through a simple three-step process situational analysis, strategy creation, and plan implementation. First we analyze the situation to get a lay of the land and understand exactly what we're dealing with. Then we use the information from our analysis to create a customized strategy for your situation. And then we work with you to put these powerful strategies into action so you can close the deal or resolve the conflict. If you don't prepare properly, you run the risk of missing out on these critical opportunities. Remember, negotiation is the art of deal discovery, not deal making. I will help you to find the best deal possible, and I'll teach you how and when to walk away from a deal that's bad for you. Sometimes the worst outcome in a negotiation is a deal that never should have been made. When we work together, you'll know that you've put yourself in the best position for success. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email if there's a specific problem or opportunity you'd like to work through. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great week, and I'll catch you in the next one.